When you build a robot that looks even anything like a human, the expectation management is, is really challenging. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the consumer or the business says, gosh, this needs to operate like C-3PO or K-2SO or any, you know, pick your notable, you know, humanoid robot from what science fiction has shown us. So, you know, that focus on expectation management um, is just a challenge we still haven't really been able to get over yet in the human-centric space. Welcome to The Future Of, a podcast by Fresh Consulting, where we discuss and learn about the future of different industries, markets, and technology verticals. Together, we'll chat with leaders and experts in the field and discuss how we can shape the future human experience. I'm your host, Jeff Dance. If we can start with you, Jonathan, would you care to tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, also about agility? Um, where you're both a founder and the CTO. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I um, have been thinking about legged locomotion, walking and running, and physical interaction in general um, my whole career. And, um, you know, that's taken me through an academic path. I was a professor before this, studying biomechanics uh, of animals, studying reduced order models, simulations, and then if you really understand something, you should be able to reproduce it, right? So figuring out how to capture the principles of physics, uh, how do these things work, and make robots that capture those core physics and really demonstrate walking and running in the, in the same way that you see an animal doing it. Um, that's, I don't know, that's, that's my background in a, in a nutshell. And uh, co-founded this company because uh, I wanna make a difference with it. You know, that's an enabling technology. If you can build robots that go where people go, and can really interact with the world in uh, many of the same ways that a people people can, right? Uh, our our vision is to enable humans to be more human, and it's about having robots that come into our world and our environment, uh, do a lot of the dull, dirty, dangerous, do a lot of things that we'd rather not do, um, and help us really enable people to do the things that people are good at: the uh, decision making, the variety, the you know creativity, the ambition, all of those things. These robots are really useful tools and that's what we want to create. Awesome. I, I was recently reading about the Guinness World Record that uh, was set and I saw your name in that article. Uh, can you tell us just a, briefly about that? Sure. So that's the Cassie robot I just mentioned. And uh, Cassie was, like I said, the very first product that Agility Robotics sold. It's just a bipedal robot sold to you know the research market for the purpose of trying to figure out control algorithms for walking, running, and so on. And so that's what my lab at the university has been doing in parallel as we've been building out the company, Agility Robotics. Um, one of the things that you can do at a university that you can't do at a company is blue sky ideas. Just try something. You're not sure if it's gonna work, you know, let's check it out. NSF, National Science Foundation, DARPA kinds of things. And um, so our, at that point, our real focus was to say, hey, there's a lot of limitations to the con control methods that we're using now. There's a lot of limitations to uh, an engineer being able to write down a model, a human understandable model, or a human understandable equation and describe the behavior that you want. We're going to need to figure out something that more like machine learning, more like some sort of optimization tools in order to really create this complex, nonlinear, strange behavior. We know a lot about the behavior. We can write down kind of um, all the symptoms that we see in the behavior. Um, you know, we started with, uh, say, running pretty quickly on a treadmill, and we took it out to do our first uh, outdoor run. And it was interesting, the, the crown of the road was enough 
slant that we hadn't modeled and hadn't tested, then we were able to run a 5K uh, outdoors on about a half a battery um, on Cassie. Um, and then that's progressed. The robot can go up and down stairs and is completely blind. Um, and then recently uh, ran that 100 meter dash and broke the world record for speed. Um, and what's really exciting about that is that now is really outperforming any of the uh, control methods that we used before. So this machine learning approach is just a really promising way. What's changing right now that, that kind of positions us in a, in a better chance for success? Jo Jonathan, interested in your thoughts on that. Sure. Um, I think maybe I'll start by pointing out that there's a lot that, like I mentioned earlier, a lot that's really hard for a robot to do in terms of manipulation and physical interaction with the world. And certainly that doesn't change if a robot is shaped like a humanoid or is a you know, six-axis robot arm. It's still a really hard problem. So even if you shape it like a humanoid, you're going to have to understand those dynamics and pieces. Even if it looks like something that should be able to do that job, um, looking like it can and actually being able to are very different things. So yeah, the, the proof's in the pudding. Now, I'll say there's a couple things that I've observed really shifting um, in recent years. And one of them is kind of the basic science. You know, I, I focus maybe on the legged locomotion piece because that's, that's kind of the, I think of legged locomotion as one of the hardest possible physical interaction tasks. It's not a fine manipulation task, but it's um, a mobile robot that has to apply large enough forces to lift itself off the ground. It has regular impacts with the ground over and over and over. Um, and then it's got to apply those forces throughout stance and then have some sort of a swing phase. So you've, you've got this kind of model where you're swinging your lightweight you know, leg or limb or whatever it is, and then the model switches when you impact the ground, and now you're trying to move the mass of the robot. So that's a hybrid system. It, it's just incredibly complicated. Now, I, I've heard people describe running as um, you know, juggling yourself. And uh, so if you think about you know, now if I'm going to juggle uh, a mass or something like that, you know, that's, that's a hard physical interaction task. So if we can really tackle um, the hardware and the software to get us to do all different kinds of gates and behaviors, uh, we're also going to be able to manipulate boxes and packages and things like that using a lot of the exact same tools and a lot of the same understanding um, on the engineering on the hardware side. Of course, different special you know, specialized engineering system for each, but the, the, the principles are there. So, you know, I'd say 10 or 20 years ago, even though we are familiar with seeing animals and humans do amazing physical interaction and walking and running tasks, the actual understanding of how that works, being able to write down the equation that describes how that works and then do some engineered system that can reproduce it is um, you know, very, very limited, just from a basic science understanding. And, and we understand so much more now. Um, like I mentioned, Atreus is the first machine to reproduce human walking gait dynamics. That's kind of a big deal, right? It's never been understood before to the point where you can reproduce it. Now it has. That will never change, right? It's something that is now understood. How does walking work? You can write down an equation, you can build a system, and you can get those same kind of dynamics and behaviors. Still a ton to figure out, of course, but there's some core science things about understanding that. And that understanding is just broadening in the world. There's, you know, when I was a graduate student, the Dynamic Walking Conference started. And it started with four of us, you know, at a coffee house. It's grown to a really big regular conference. And all of those people have gone out and joined companies, started companies, become professors, et cetera. And that knowledge is really starting to become um, much more broadly understood. So some of the basic science. And then the other piece of it is, how do you coordinate, say, 26, 30, 
motors, uh, you know, 100 plus sensors, including complex ones like cameras and LIDAR and things like that, but also all of the encoders and all of the thermal sensors and everything. So just think, you've got hundreds of sensors giving you data, now write an equation or an algorithm that then outputs torque to 30 different motors and then coordinate that to play basketball, you know? I mean, so, you know, 20 years ago, it was much more about, can I control a six degree of freedom arm using inverse dynamics, inverse kinematics, and so on. And, and now it's uh, starting to open up as people understand various uh, learning techniques, um, optimization techniques, uh, figure out control hierarchies that use reduced order models and map those to the more complex systems, and in real time be able to control that many degrees of freedom with that much data coming in from sensors. That's also a new kind of enabling technology. Those two things coming together, that's why you're starting to really see some success out of robots. These last few years have, have created new demand, but they've also created new challenges, you know, supply chain challenges, an example. Um, agility seems to be still fast at work uh, in producing units. Um, how have the last few years sort of affected uh, your, your company? Yeah, as, you know, it's a definitely a double-edged sword. Um, I will say that su supply chain stuff has been really challenging. You know, we, we need to be iterating very quickly on our hardware reps. And some of these, these the timelines for getting components and parts in have just really extended in, in ways that are very hard to deal with. And we've been redesigning circuit boards regularly to deal with parts that are just no longer available. And we have to change the design to find a part that is available. So that adds some friction. Um, obviously, work from home and so on has been challenging as well when you have to physically build something. Um, but we've managed that. You know, we've made it through that. Um, our company has been um, bi-coastal since its inception. Uh, Damien, our CEO, lives in Pittsburgh, and we're building out our office there. We have our office here in Oregon. And so all of our processes have kind of enabled us to, to continue to function pretty well through that. Um, on the other hand, people's attitudes have really changed about automation when they realized how much um, tools like this can improve their quality of life and the things that they rely on. And people's perception of risk, of what's dangerous in the dull, dirty, dangerous has changed. Um, and, and that's really helped us. People now look at the possibilities of what a machine like Digit can do for them and how that's really gonna improve things um, a lot more now. And that just a cultural shift has been has been great because it's it's not new, it's something that you know, those of us who've been in robotics for a long time, the, the data shows kind of the value of this. And, and those of us who've thought it through and been in it for a long time, maybe see it or have examples of it. Um, but it's, it's a new thing, you know, as it starts to shift from movies being the primary perception that people have about robots to examples in the market that people have and starting to get a much more nuanced and um, better understanding. I, I, it, it's a really valuable and important shift. It's, you know, I'll say the movies are great because let's explore the fears and the dangers first. Let's make sure that we all ask those hard questions first and then start to really dig in deeper. Ken, if I can start with you, would you uh, care to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Indeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be back in the saddle alongside Roger as well. It's been a little while. Uh, so yeah, my name is Kane Sims. I'm a founder of a consultancy called VUX World. Uh, we help organizations uh, plan and execute customer experience strategies with a focus on artificial intelligence and namely conversational AI and voice AI, which is, uh, which is what we're going to talk about today. Any thoughts on 
on the the future of of voice kind of connected to robotics. Um, I mean, I'd like to say, Alexa, do the dishes and take out the trash and do the laundry and order me my favorite pizza, you know, like all, all in one breath. Um, but <laughs> do you guys have any thoughts for the future there? And, and uh, I, you know, we're obviously spending time there, but I'm interested in your perspectives um, as well. Yeah, it's interesting. The... I don't know where I stand on the whole on the whole home robot thing. Again, we were talking about references to old uh, programs, so we've talked about Night Rider. I'm sure there's a few people who've seen the Jetsons in the past, and uh, wh- whether we're heading to that level of robotics in the home. I know Amazon have launched Astro and stuff like that, which is the kind of first edition of in-home robot. And there's a couple of voice-enabled Hoovers and stuff like that. I don't know. I, I, honestly don't know where that stuff will will head to be honest fundamentally because there's only a handful of things i can imagine it doing and i wouldn't really want it following me around the house having said that if you'd have told me 20 years ago i'd have been talking to a hockey puck in the side of my living room then (laughs) i might have thought you were a bit mad then as well um but certainly what do what do robots do is it's the exact same answer to that question as when you ask what does an assistant do what does a digital assistant do which is it does grunt work the people don't like doing or they get tired of doing you know a, a bot never has a day off never has a sick day doesn't want to put annual leave in never has to leave early to go and pick the kids up so it does stuff repetitively consistently over time and so i think that we're going to see definitely a proliferation of robots in the enterprise and robots in areas in public and whatnot where that kind of grunt work is needed how how is our voice how is a voice interface going to help or hinder i think People, if you look at Sophia, one of the you know famous kind of like uh, humanoid robots, if you like, you see a robot like that, and immediately you just assume that you can talk to it. It's the same thing when you see a digital avatar on screen or in an app, or if you want to get into the kind of metaverse conversation, digital avatars inherently must be able to be spoken to because that's exactly what they're embodiment of a human being. And so if you ever have a, a robot in the world, wherever it is, whether it's on a factory stacking boxes or whether it's in a house uh, stacking the dishwasher, if it's got a face, if it looks like a human, it needs to have a conversational interface because there's just an expectation there. Um, I also think there's there's room beyond that when it comes to the practical side of it. Like it, it would be ideal to be able to ask your washing machine what's wrong with it, be able to ask the robot if it's got a problem, how to debug it, how to fix it, all of that kind of stuff that you need to Google and watch YouTube videos and figure out how to do stuff <laughs> should be solved by not just the voice interface, but having the capability to serve those needs uh, as part of the software. But yeah, I think that in closing, anything that has that looks like a human, you should be able to speak to and, and voice is, is naturally the, the only real modality of doing that. If you think about where VR is going with not just analyzing your voice and having conversational UI built into it, but also your eye movements and your emotions and some of your body language. Um, any thoughts on on how this will play into kind of the, the metaverse? Mm. Well, in the metaverse, you you don't have a keyboard you know, if if you are if you're wearing a headset and all you have is your eyes fundamentally, it might be a recognizing time where your hands are in that, you know, without holding on to some controls and you'd be able to recognize where your elbows and knees are and stuff like that. But we're not we're not kind of there yet. So in the absence of that, the navigation really seems to me the, the perfect way of navigating the operating system within the metaverse is, is a voice user interface. Um, but then also even within there, you know, there's definitely going to be digital 
real beings that are not actually real, you know, digital avatars, virtual humans, and interacting with them is going to be through a conversational AI. Um, so I think there's definitely a whole load of opportunities for this technology in, in that kind of space. I'm not, again, <clears throat> I tend to be a bit cynical with certain things like in-home robotics in the metaverse. I think it's early days. The metaverse, I think, might actually skip a generation. You know, I don't think my my uh, my dad's not going to be wearing his VR headset and and uh, you know going to the club and and playing cards. But um, but I think that the operating system level needs some kind of uh, navigation capability, and I think voice is perfect. And then within those environments, as more use cases and scenarios get built in them, I think we're going to see actually interaction with virtual beings being uh, dominated by a voice interface as well. Eric, if I can start with you, uh, you've been a partner at Lemnos, a managing partner at Klein Venture Partners. Prior to that, a VP for advanced engineering of Nokia and a VP of Java marketing at Sun Microsystems. Really like that combo of hardware and software experience that you have over over dozens of years. And over, the, over that time, you've built some of the you know, most well-known products and probably advised, I don't know, how many companies have you advised uh, over the years? I think I've invested and advised over a hundred companies, which sounds crazy. And, uh, you know, I, I was blessed to have the opportunity to work on some some iconic products over the years. I worked on the original Macintosh PowerBooks and the first PowerPC Macs. I got to work on some of the original Palm Pilots when I was at Palm, uh, Started a little video game company called Bungie. Uh, helped start that with some with some great folks, uh, makers of the Halo universe. So yeah, I've had a a great career, but hardware has always been a a, a big part of that and uh, weaved into my narrative. Awesome. As it relates to construction itself, given our topic today, tell us more about some of the experience uh, in that space. Yeah, about six or seven years ago, my my partners and I at Lemnos were really researching the future of labor. Really, when we talk mm. about when we think about robotics, we think about applied robotics, which is a, a robot doing a particular task, not a general purpose robot like the the Jetsons had. We're not quite there yet, but really looking at at different labor areas and what could be augmented using robotics as robotics started to mature. Right. We finally got to the point where we could, from a cost perspective, build robots that could perform useful tasks. And what we found was that construction was one of the more powerful areas for that for that growth. And so we started looking at investments both in construction-based robotics companies, companies like Quartz Robotics that was looking at at uh, at construction towers and um, and safety around that, and some horizontal applications like uh, functional safety and security with a company like Fort Robotics. So we've had the opportunity to invest in the area. We, we believe very strongly that construction is one of those tasks. Again, if you look at it, there's so many subtasks that, that, that are necessary to bring a building up. And that right now there's the opportunity for some of those to be automated. Not all of them yet, but some of them. And, and so that curiosity and that data started us down a path of investing and learning and working with everybody in the industry around this. Thank you. And thanks for being here with us. Really excited to get your your perspective from all that experience that you have as experts in this space. And you, as we, as we project forward, what does the future of construction look like to to both of you, Eric? Let's start with you. Yeah, I think there an interesting way to do that is just to take a bunch of technologies and and project them into the future, but overlay them into construction, right? And you can do things. And I'll I'll start with a simple example. If you look at the future of of mixed reality. 
right? The the opportunities here are huge. Uh, Mitch, as you as you know, like one of the big things is you know is coordination on a job site and knowing that the job's been done right. And 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 the right is there's a there's this interesting term BIM, right? The that somebody designed it a certain way, but all through that process, so many different tradespeople come to work on a project. Um, and you can see, you can start to imagine in the future where you're going to be able to put on an augmented reality, you know, pair of glasses and really see the data behind the actual physical object, right? We talk a lot about digital twinning, right? This idea that there's a, a digital version. Well, the digital version starts with what we intended the building or the property to be. Um, and but but being able to look into that and see both what you know was expected and what's reality because we're you know on a construction <laughs> site things change change orders come in things don't necessarily always go the way you expect but another area is around advanced manufacturing right where we we talk about a lot in the construction business about bringing more things pre-assembled to a site and also the ability in the future to start manufacturing you know taking very raw pieces. And doing subassembly manufacturing right on site, right, where you can assemble, you know, walls, parts of the building, in, in a lot of things. So this both prefab, more prefab coming in, completely, you know, dialed into the the original building specification, or building things on site, aka three D printing, as I think we we back this out to a little bit. But uh, I've seen amazing stuff where we're, you're pretty three D printing, but you're using concrete. Right, you're using other substances. This isn't just plastics in the future. And then one that I think is near and dear to a lot of our hearts is 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 ro- robotics and automation is augmenting um, human labor and and using robots to uh, whether it's the mundane or the thing that just takes a, you know it's a thousand rivets kind of thing. Bringing the robotics in to help accomplish tasks because one of the biggest challenges we face in construction is labor. And it's it's actually that right. we don't have enough labor for the amount of construction that needs to get done. So augmentation allows us to to get get more done in an era where we're going to be challenged to find enough people to build what we need to build. Yeah, I've heard that the there's a national labor crisis in construction, uh, and they've raised this up to the government. This is a serious crisis. This was years ago, but and pre pandemic. And now, like many industries are kind of in that same space, but I think it's made it even worse for the construction. Well, I, I always love to tell the story. Uh, one of my companies is Path Robotics, and they look at, at the future of welding. And in the United mm-hmm. States right now, there's a gap between two and 400,000 welders. Shipyards wow. literally can't do the work they want to do because they don't have enough folks. And the average age of a welder is 56 years old. That, that stat blew my mind and what it, you know, up until yeah. many years ago, we honored the trade crafts, but, you know, there was a pivot in our society where we said, you know, white collar jobs are, are really where we want to draw. And, and America backed away to a certain extent from vocational schools and, and from the, these amazing arts. And now the challenge is, is no matter how fast, even if we had people available to do it, to, to, to move them through the trades and to give them the skills that these folks have had and, and, and learned over 30 years, there's almost no way to catch up. We're going to have to use augmentation to, to help get, again, build America and build the world, really. 
Mitch, if I can move over to you, you know, recognize you have 30 years of experience in, in the construction space and also the engineering and automation and software space. You've been, you know, I've been at Packard as a lead of their product lifecycle management team. Packard being one of the, you know, Fortune 500 companies that's one of the biggest in the space in trucking. Uh, and just one of the largest manufacturers in that in that vertical. And then at Microsoft, you've you found and led the devices engineering, a services organization that supported over 3,500 people, uh, lots of experience there. And then now recently as at Fresh Consulting as our robotics director. Not only that, I, my understanding is that you've devoted, you know, hundreds of hours to coaching STEM and kind of first robotics with high school students and you have four kids. How do you do it all? <laughs> uh, thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. I'm just focused on my vision. Uh, and that vision is, you know, first and foremost, empowering people. And then where I can, you know, working on technology that saves the planet. And then someday exploring the universe, right? And along with that, it's it's about, you know, tons of grit. Um, and, you know, you're not going to find me, you know, on a cruise ship. Instead, you'll find me in my backyard tinkering on my riding lawnmower, converting it from petrol to a, you know, electric type of, you know, vehicle. It's about, you know, continually learning and investing. I'd love to hear your perspective, Mitch. What does the future of construction sort of look like for you? I, I resonate a lot with um, all of Eric's comments. Um, and, you know, from a general contractor standpoint, uh, the way I, I look on it, at it is really looking at the problems that they face. Um, and, you know, as Eric was saying, it's, it's going to that, how, how can I coordinate my crew and my subs more effectively, uh, at the right time within the building plan and the communication between different subcontractors, the suppliers delivering material on site and, and really that connectivity, right? The, the future of the, the, the smart job site is really about bringing connectivity to both your materials and your tools and your people. So, the last thing I need is one of my subs forgetting their tool on the other side of the site, and it takes them two hours to walk over and get it and return back to their, you know, the, the site where they're performing work. And, and then it goes into that, that, that augmentation, right? Um, knowing, knowing the people within the space, they, they enjoy what they do, but they want to do less of those annoying repetitive tasks. It's right. how can, you know, as Eric was talking about from an augmentation standpoint, how can I understand within, if I'm installing an electrical panel within this, this wall, what's, what's the BIM say? What does code say? How do I maintain that context to perform that, that job right there within that local space? Um, and, mm -hmm. and do that faster, right? And then it's, it's also things like, I think, um, when, you know, as again, as a GC, um, it's, it's making sure that did my guy, show up to work today <laughs> to get the job done. And so, you know, how can I augment and, and, and help those that do show up more effective? So like, I think of this scenario of a, um, a, a drywall installation. Um, and, you know, a semi truck pulls in pallets full of drywall. You have two folks unloading onto drywall carts, then two folks walking that drywall cart into the place of installation and then repeating that tons of times. And so it's, well, what if instead of two people walking that drywall cart loaded with drywall, what if it's one and it's a, you know, robotic cart that then understands context of what the mission is, follow this person to the place of, you know, installation. There's one less person that's required on the job site and going back to the comment of, 
you know, white collar versus fruit collar, you know, it's now there's somebody at, you know, some engineering desk designing the next thing to augment those that are still on site. As we think about uh, some of these new new spaces that are really growing quite rapidly, much like space, you know, where costs are kind of coming down and innovation is going up. Like, how do you see some of these spaces, you know, industries and in, in, in technologies impacting uh, the space economy? So I'll jump on that. I mean, what we do at AstroScale involves all three of those that you just mentioned, robotics, um, autonomy and AI, drone technology, and, and how we can apply that to space. You know, when we're talking about the segments of the space economy, one of the big gaps that exist today that, that we're starting to fill is the, um, delivering value in space. So as of today, once you launch a satellite, it is on its own until it dies. And there's nothing you can do about it unless you can, you know, send a command to fix from the ground. Um, but that's a, that's a limited set. Um, what we need is the ability to offer value from an, something in space to another part of the in-space economy. And that will absolutely leverage, uh, you know, robotics is key to that for our ability to, um, to keep a satellite in operation or once we get to the step of being able to repair problems with satellites on orbit so that they can continue operating. Um, advanced robotics are going to be key to that, having a lot of different, you know, end effectors, different bits and, and pieces on the end of robotic arms to be able to implement those changes that are needed. Um, and then autonomy to be able to manage all of these interacting spacecraft so that you don't have to have, you know, operators on the ground and, and the fixed ratio of operators on the ground to spacecraft in orbit. If we want to scale the space economy, we need to step away from having human operators involved in, in every satellite. And so we're already seeing that with constellations being run autonomously, um, but we need to see that with, with other pieces as well. Um, and there's, there's so much potential to, for technologies that are developed and tested terrestrially to be used in space. Um, I mean, sure, there, there are unique challenges that we face. The radiation environment in space is totally different from on Earth. But depending on how long you want something to operate or the extent to which you can protect it, the ability to use what we call commercial off-the-shelf capabilities that might come from automotive or might come from drone, using those technologies in space, it does two things. One, it can reduce the cost of what we're doing in space because those are usually much lower cost capabilities than a bespoke space solution. Um, but it also increases the speed at which we can deploy new innovations in space. Traditionally, the, the timeline to put anything in space is, is very long. We're often seen as a super high-tech next-generation industry, but we're pretty far in the past because it takes a long time to design something, test it, get heritage, put it on space. But if we can, use le if we can leverage innovations from other industries, we can shorten that and really increase what we can do in space on a more rapid timeline. Let's talk about that future a little bit more. So, so we're here today, but you know, in, in, in space, you think probably think in terms of you know decades, right? But what you know, what do we anticipate the space economy being like twenty to forty years from now? We know that it's predicted to be big, um, but um, what are some thoughts about what that what that future looks like? My vision is uh, maybe a bit more sci-fi, um, but I think where we where we can, <laughs> yeah where we can get. If we really address the problems as, as we've identified them today, which involves a lot of different players across the industry, across academia, across policy, we can get into that. But I see this future of space where there's a more robust, dynamic, um, interconnected activity in space. Right now, satellites are out there on their own. But I think for us to deliver more value, we need to be able to provide services to those spacecraft. We need to have different 
orbiting platforms that enable much more research to occur in space that then can drive value back on Earth, whether that's to cosmetics or biopharma or, or whatever that application might be. Um, having those established resources, being able to lower the risk, it's a huge thing that investors come to of like, there's so much risk involved in space. So, you know, in 20 and 30 years, understanding that better, managing that better. Um, but yeah, I really envision this sort of buzzing space economy where I see satellites moving around autonomously, servicing others, having resources in space, having an outpost on the moon. Um, there's, there's so much potential. Um, and it's also going to create new applications in space. You know, as we've moved over time, it started with communications, which is great. In the nineties, we saw companies say, wow, we could also take pictures from space. And there's so much analytics that that drives back on earth. Um, what we've been able to achieve with GPS, um, what we've been able to achieve with um, asset tracking, right? Understanding which ships are where. So there's so many new untapped things that could exist in the space economy in 30 years uh, that it's almost hard to envision really what those could be. People might think of it as automation is opposite of people or, you know, exclusive of people. But I really think, again, the, the approach and the mindset is it's about people, actually. Automation is about people using robots. It's about how do we bring the people along, um, include them in the process, uh, help them understand this is for their benefit. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to call back to our, one of our previous podcasts with, with Mitch, and we talked about robotics. And we, we used to have this really... Um, simplistic it, it it was just really helpful for us to think about you know what does automation mean to us uh, and and for Mitch and myself well we had different focuses and we we made um you know a circle around anything with wheels was a was a robot and anything that you know worked did work in a manufacturing space logistics center or perform you know tests and, and functions that were directed on a, on a closed environment was really more what industrial automation was. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's convenient at least for categorization to think about, you know, closed environments and open environments or, you know, fixed environments and, and unstructured environments as, as one way. And the, I think traditionally, industrial automation has lived in the fixed environment space but I think when we, you know, we should talk about this more today as we, as we look towards the future, um, those things I think are, are quickly blending or, or the future is going to be a mix of both of those. We're just now getting to the point where everything has information. It's faster to connect. It's faster to get that information to other places. We're only using the data we need. We're not, you know, storing thousands of, you know, camera pictures on servers and never looking at them again. Um, and then one thing to mention that's a trend is definitely collaborative robots and being able to take automation and bring it to the smaller manufacturers and having human humans interacting with these robots where, you know, safety is, is easy. Hi, I'm Jeff Gable, and I just joined Fresh as Automation Director about a month ago. I have a long history in automation. I've been in the business for about 36 years with brief forays into some product development and product realization. I've been both an external integrator and an internal automation resource. I've automated entire factories and then run those factories in, in high production settings um, where we're making 30,000 units a day. 
There's always an impetus to be ahead of the curve in any industry, but what do you think will be the next big step forward in industrial automation? I think what we're going to see next is articulated and scare robotic arms mounted. We always see this mounted to platforms, but being able to do real work where they are just not tethered to anything at all, and they have the ability to find the work piece, find the part feeder, and pick and place the part or do whatever assembly is necessary, and they do it all on wheels. And that'll be a really big step. That'll change the whole face of things. Yeah, I think a lot of businesses think automation is always lights out and that there's no people and it has to be all robots and it has to be all high speed. But that's not necessarily the case. There's a lot of companies that I'm doing manual assist or hybrid manufacturing that's still way better than making it by hand. I mean, there's a lot of um, you know manual operations still out there and people are getting carpal tunnel. There's you know lawsuits, things, and and all of a sudden that's already justified. You you've got your ROI already there, and you know. But it doesn't mean you have to make it, you know, massive robots that are that are making your product. There's there's a lot of clever ways to do it, and and finding the appropriate automation, you know, solution for your company is, I think, the challenge that you know all these companies are faced with. You said being thoughtful about it in automation. Um, people might think of it as um, automation is op- opposite of people, or you know, exclusive of people. But I really think, again, the, the approach and the mindset is you have to bring people. It's about, it, it's, it's about people, actually. Automation is about people. Using robots is about how do we bring the people along, um, include them in the process, uh, help them understand this is for their benefit. Um, most companies, you know, one of these other really big trends is, is that people are not, uh, companies are not trying to replace, replace their people. They're trying to augment them and, and, that's a message I've seen extremely strongly uh, over and over again. Again, lots of different places. It's they need, you know, they want their flywheel to be more efficient, but they're they're not trying to replace the people. They they have need and use for those people, and they want to go on the automation journey um, together with their people and involve them in that process. What are the challenges we face in industrial automation today? I don't know if it's a challenge or not, but I think one of the interesting things out there is is how do the uh, new suite of mobile robotic platforms affect how we lay out production lines? Because up until recently, everything was laid out as a rigid transfer system where parts were moved down the line through different cells. But with the introduction of mobile robotics, that's all changing. And, uh, you know, there are big questions about the stability of the platform and the accuracy of the platform and what all you can do with that with a limited power budget. But it is going to change the face of of automation in in the next decade. And it's going to be a very interesting change. In this episode of The Future Of, we're joined by Amanda Marge to explore the future of recycling. Amanda, we're so excited to have you and touch on this important subject about our future together. Thanks, Jeff. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's so exciting. You know, garbage is such a big issue. We know recycling is the, a huge part of that answer. I was reading recently that there's 2.2 billion tons of waste kind of produced each year. And, you know, obviously a portion of that gets recycled. But um, to give it give perspective of that, like uh, the comparison was 1 million ton is close to three Empire State buildings. So we're talking like thousands of Empire State buildings of garbage each year. 
This is such a big issue for our future. So I'm really excited to chat with you, learn more about your experience in the garbage and recycling space. Uh, this, this really the sustainability space. Um, can you tell the listeners more about your background, a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I am senior director at Amp Robotics, and in my current role, we make trash robots. So it's AI-driven robots to sort recycling off of moving belts. When you put a recyclable in your blue bin, it goes to a material recovery facility, and that's where our technology lives to help sort those into the right commodity items. Prior to AMP, I spent some time at GE working in uh, hosted smart grid solutions. So that was my kind of first sustainability product. Um, had a variety of roles at GE, all in um, electrical distribution roles. Um, and then I went to Amazon for a period and worked in logistics. So now I'm recycling all the boxes that I used to ship out at Amazon. Tell us a little bit more about AMP Robotics. Uh, we want to we talk about kind of today and the future, but you know, Amp Robotics seems like such a fascinating company. Tell us more. Yeah, I think it's fascinating too. Amp Robotics started in 2014. Our founder and CEO is Matanya Horowitz. Um, he has many degrees, but amongst them is a PhD in robotics. And so back in uh, 2012 to 2014, he was looking around at the um, kind of new technology that AI, AI could bring. And he was looking around at where this could really help the world. Um, and so he looked at a number of different opportunities, but came across uh, the waste industry and uh, everyone told him, there's no way you can apply this technology to the waste industry. Things are really messy. It's going to be really hard to detect uh, what's happening. And I'm pretty sure he said, challenge accepted. Uh, <laughs> and then he started AMP. Um, so it was a lot of uh, dumpster diving and a lot of figuring out how do we first apply the AI identification to be able to say, this is you know, an aluminum can, this is a plastic water bottle, um, and it's specifically what, what polymer of plastic is it? And then putting it together with uh, robots. We started with a, a, a side-to-side robot, a gantry robot, and um, made many modifications from there. And now we use a Delta-style robot um, and that it can move in many different directions with quite a lot of speed and quite a lot of force. Um, so where we are today, fast forward from 2014 to 2022, we have over 250 robots installed and being used um, across the world. Our primary customers are located in North America. Uh, we're based out of Colorado, so uh, North America is our primary market. Um, uh, so different countries across Europe and Asia Pacific. Um, and we apply this technology in a few different vertical markets for recycling. Uh, the primary market is your material recovery facilities for single stream recyclables. That's what we throw in our blue bins. Um, another one is the organics uh, industry, specifically pulling out contaminants from organic streams so that that can go and get composted correctly. Um, and then the third is construction and demolition because um, everything becomes end of life at some point. Um, we also do apply our technology in electronic scrap recycling as well. I'm glad you mentioned that, that there were, were a big part of the problem today. Obviously, there's so many pieces of this circular, hopefully circular economy. There's the government, there's the the companies themselves, there's the companies that, that make the, the, the products, there's us as consumers, uh, and uh, you mentioned, you know, the, the economics associated with all this as well. I, I can see why it's a challenge, why it takes time, why it takes kind of coalition and, and, and a lot of work across the board to kind of move the needle, but we need people like you to help us do so. First, let's touch on the future a little bit. Um, you mentioned the, you know, AMP's robotics mission was a, a world without waste. Um, so as we think about the future, you know, 10 to 20 years from now, like, how, how do we get there? How, what do you envision in the next 10 to 20 years? Yeah. 
My North Star vision and my dream is that we actually do have a world where everything is first designed for circularity. So designed for composting, designed for recyclability, um, you know, designed for circularity in the packaging so that you and I as consumers aren't bearing the burden of how do I, you know, end of life this product that I've just enjoyed the convenience from it. Um, to do that, it takes a lot of data. It takes a lot of economic incentives um, and it takes a long period of change. Um, and so that really goes back to how is the government through structures like extended producer responsibility driving the reporting requirements and from, from that, from data, comes system-wide change. Um, how does that hold consumer packaged goods companies um, you know, accountable. You and I don't have a choice when we go to the grocery store and we want to buy blueberries, for example. They all come in thermoforms. That's just how they are transported. That's the best thing for reducing your weight during transportation, which reduces emissions. You know, that's why I don't want to say plastics are awful. They bring us a lot of savings for, you know, sustainability initiatives in other places. But we don't really have a choice for now, what do I do with this packaging, right? And so I think that goes back to now um, the packaging producer, and, and what do they do to design that for recyclability? So that's kind of the first part of, you know, the value chain is around that, that circularity of the packaging. The second part where we play is around the sortation. If we can see it, we can sort it. And we can see it because we have AI and, and the benefits of this technology and how that's grown over the past decade. Um, and, you know, things like the GPU cards becoming, you know, cheaper and faster. Thank you, gaming industry. Um, you know, helps with, with things here. Um, so very cool. Um, and then the last part is the offtake. Um, so you can have the packaging, you can sort it. That's all great. But now what do you do with it? And how do you turn it into something uh, different. And so when I when I envision that, you know, that North Star vision of the perfect world, it's that that whole value chain, everything has a place. It can go. Everything can be, you know, sorted and everything ends up um, in a reuse state. To summarize, um, you know, if we think about the next 10 years, it's more about kind of infrastructure, kind of data, lots of data, 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 and and more machines that can help with the sorting yeah. aspect, the designing aspect where things can be more recognizable, where companies are actually helping you with that. Yeah. And then from there, maybe 20 years from now, it's like we truly have a more domestic sort of circular economy yeah. where we get th these higher thresholds of usability when we're when we're doing all the wishful recycling, essentially. Yeah. Maybe our, our wishfulness gets better, essentially. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, 10 years is, you know, data is driving, um, you know, immediate change on what we can produce and what we can sort. 20 years is, you know, the, that packaging. So there's kind of the three parts of the value chain the packaging, the sortation, the offtake. Packaging is changing. You know, sortation is, is now a solved problem, which is, you know, so wonderful. And it really couldn't have been solved in this way before we had the technology to recognize you got to see items to sort it, right? Um, and now the offtake piece is, is a huge part of a lot of academic research going into how do you make better use of these kind of undesirable materials that don't inherently have good value, aren't highly recyclable. What do we do with them? Steve, uh, grateful to have you here with us. As we look to the future, you know, like 20 years from now, what do you see, um, what do you see autonomous systems doing? I believe the autonomous systems will be ubiquitous everywhere. It will be like a everyday normal items for everybody's life, not only in the factory floor, but also in some consumer uh, use cases. Uh, think about now, like in China, uh, some companies are deploying those uh, robot taxis on the open road already. 
in U.S. is the case that we have a couple of companies doing this too. This is the beginning. I think uh, with all those technologies penetrating to our daily life, and sooner or later we'll have, we'll see a lifestyle change for everybody. This is what's happening. Yeah. The thought is that we're building things that are designed for us not to control. Mm-hmm. But we very much still want to control and have intent in autonomous systems. Elaborate a bit more on that. What are your thoughts? Well, I I wouldn't like the word of control per se, because uh, in the end, you cannot control anything. Especially, I don't believe we can control robot in all the aspects uh, as the technology evolves. What we can do is that we can find a way to live in harmony with those devices and the robots. And robots need to respect the human being, and we also need to respect the robot. Because there are also quite a lot of debate, either in the, you know, the science fiction society or in the public space about uh, should we set up some fundamental rules for, for the robots? Like, the, first of all, robots should not hurt, should not hurt human being, right? Um, the same thinking about that is uh, if people are using the AI or perception computer vision technologies, trying to control people's life, like in some spaces they use surveillance cameras in a very abusive way, trying to probe your privacy or let you behave good. Um, that's not the right way to use the AI. And also in the educational use, some teachers believe that the AI is interfering with the natural process of the education. So that's the fear. And, but looking at this inevitable, we have to use those technologies down the road. So how do we reach a common ground among the people, especially among the people to reach a mutual understanding on what's the boundary for us to use the technologies? The boundary, the boundary can be changing over time. Because nowadays we think that's the boundary, but in 10 or 20 years, we may think the boundary can move up or move down. That's all debatable and it should be all negotiable. Welcome, Gurdeep. It's a, a pleasure to have you with me on the episode focused on the future of autonomous systems. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for having me on the show. If we imagine, you know, what do autonomous systems look like 20 years from now? What are some of the the, the biggest problems you see autonomous, you said, hey, it could be, could apply everywhere. But as we think about the world and where we're going, there's been a lot of concern recently. How do you envision autonomous systems, you know, solving some of these, these big problems? I expect that autonomous systems will, will run large parts of the world, um, you know, uh, in the next 20 years. Uh, convinced of that. And I think we, uh, you know, as a, you know, s- society as a sort of generation. I mean, we've seen COVID and we've seen what a devastation it had on, you know, global production and global supply and uh, and so on. And then, you know, that's sort of one big problem. Uh, the other big problem is, you know, this climate change is sort of creating very, very quickly, um, very novel problems for, for humanity. 
And I expect autonomous systems to to really, really play an incredible role. You know, I'll, I'll give you a couple of very tangible examples. You know, we've seen uh, recently the the fires. Uh, in fact, right now in New Mexico, there's these fires going on in, in California, and some of the fires, you know, we know were started by uh, by by power lines, and uh, and they were there was some were of course human. So the power lines, like you know, it's like an intractable task for the power companies to actually inspect power lines across the state of California. Like it, it just it's just not feasible. If you had drones which could do that for you, not only do that once, they could do that like every month. You could have drones inspecting every inch of power lines. And they could be, you know, uh, that that that's an example of how you could really impact safety. Uh, the other is, you know, firefighting. You know, we believe firefighting is a task that a swarm of autonomous systems can working in a in a collaborative manner can actually really really do well without any you know um, uh, risk to human life and so on so i think that there is a whole it's not just the efficiency of it i think there is a, this the, the kind of the new parameters that you know humans are dealing with uh you know then there's some more you know things that we've known for a while like if you look at in Japan, you know, they have an aging workforce problem. And, uh, you know, for them, it is existential. Like, they, they have to rely on, you know, autonomous capability. Otherwise, they cannot keep their offices running. They cannot keep their factories running and so on. So I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in this sort of this concept that, you know, the world, nature creates the problem and the solution. And I think that uh, in some ways, the nature is putting both these things in front of us. You know, hey, the world is changing and it's getting kind of crazy. But you know what? You have, you know, the antidote for that. And 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 I believe autonomous systems is it. The Future of Podcast is brought to you by Fresh Consulting. To find out more about how we pair design and technology together to shape the future, visit us at freshconsulting.com. Make sure to search for the future of an Apple podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any of our future episodes. And on behalf of our team here at Fresh, thank you for listening.